0: Cultivating Place is proud to receive support from the American Horticultural Society, celebrating 100 years of trusted, high-quality gardening and horticultural information and community since 1922. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. In our second episode of Two, focusing on the inspiring beauty of dry gardens and the plants and people who love them, we're joined this week by Saxon Holt, photojournalist. The sole photographer on more than 30 garden books, Saxon is also the owner of the Photo Botanic Garden Library and director of the Summer Dry Project. Saxon's most recent book, Gardening in Summer Dry Climates, Plants for a Lush, Water-Conscious Landscape, was published by Timber Press in 2020. It is a second collaboration between he and writer Nora Harlow. The vision of the Summer Dry Project is that in the midst of tumultuous climate change, it's all the more important that gardeners be stewards of the land, attuned to the local environment on behalf of all creatures. The Summer Dry Project provides gardeners in summer dry climates with authoritative plant information and inspiring photos that encourage sustainable garden practices. Saxon, it is such an honor to speak with you today. Welcome to the program.
1: Well, thank you, Jennifer. It's an honor to be here. I'm a fan of your work.
0: You are a well-known garden photographer, Saxon, and a name in our larger gardening world. But when you think about yourself, your personal photography, your personal garden life, if I were to ask you to give listeners a mission statement for your garden and personal photography practice what might that be
1: well i gosh i um i love plants um and i live next to open space so i really try to connect my own garden to the open space and i feel like it needs to connect to that aesthetic so i have a lot of native plants Um, i also have you know personal favorites that i've learned over the years that i just like to look at um so i i think it's just trying to to fit the garden to the climate. Um, I think that's what we all need to be doing. Um, And I think, honestly, there's no other way to think about gardening.
0: Let's go back just a little bit. Uh, You have a long career. Take us back to where you were born and raised and who were the people and plants and places that grew you into a person for whom, first of all, garden and landscape photography would be a career, but also for whom, um, our evolving garden ethos would be a calling.
1: Well, that's quite true. I've been around long enough. I feel like I've gone through several different iterations of consciousness, really, about what, who I am and what I want to do and what gardens are and what plants are. I grew up in Tidewater, Virginia, and it's, I quite honestly couldn't wait to leave there uh, as a young man. Um, I felt it was pretty small intellectually. Um, I've changed my mind now. We can go that later, but I At the time, as a young man, I was eager to leave. Um, Both my parents were gardeners. My my dad more of a vegetable gardener, my mom more ornamental, and I I certainly grew up having to do garden chores, you know, pull the weeds and cut the grass and um, being outdoors a lot. That was, although I don't remember any specific plants or or chores that I enjoyed doing. Um, When I went to college, I started having more of an awareness of the larger world. I think Earth Day happened back in the 1970, I think, and I suddenly, um, maybe it was a light bulb, but I realized there was a whole world of uh, people thinking about the natural world, and it was maybe important to think about the Earth as having finite resources. I never really thought about it uh, until that time. Um, I spent my college years um, uh, wasting them in a way. I'm glad I had a good education from University of Virginia, but I studied history, I didn't study botany, I didn't study photojournalism, I didn't study art. None of the things that today, I, I wish I had some academic training on, but that's, um, that, you know, that's the youth, I suppose, wasting an opportunity. I, I did get the photography bug when I was in college. I was a photo editor of our daily newspaper. I just uh, fell in love with the magic of photography. Um, and after college, I wanted to do something uh, with photography. I had several uh, friends who talk about what to do, how to make a living doing this. Uh, I was advised to either go to New York or San Francisco that both had commercial marketing um, industry and the photographers could find jobs. And I loved San Francisco having visited in college and the whole um, environmental hippies uh, counterculture was quite appealing to me. So I said, if I can go to San Francisco and get a job, that'd be great and I got very lucky. Um, to get a job with a master photographer. I spent four years as an apprentice, um, learning commercial photography, learning really business that you, you know, meeting deadlines and and, and professional responsibilities, those kinds of things. Um, I still, I part of what I moved to California for was not just as a professional photographer, but I was caught up in the environmental movement, the outdoors. Um, I was a big fan of uh, Ansel Adams and the, what's known as the F64 club of of photographers who trained with very precise uh, technique and um, understanding of of nature. So I was really happy to uh, be in that sort of climate. Um, And as I worked as a commercial photographer, I found myself wanting to get out um, into the world. And I volunteered for the Nature Conservancy. Um, I would go out and um, photograph uh, uh, botanic, uh, reserves in exchange somewhat for getting the botanist mm. to tell me a little bit about the plants. Ah. So that was, that, that was really fun to start connecting a little bit of uh, my photography with the outdoor world.
0: And so that was the Nature Conservancy out of the the Bay Area at that time, and, and what about what year would that have been Saxon?
1: Um, probably in the early 80s. Okay. Um, I started my own business in 1980 and after a few years realized I didn't really like the marketing world. I didn't like, and I love gardening. Um, I never had any professional uh, gardening experience, but I always liked to garden. And when I lived in San Francisco, we had a small garden uh, behind our flat near Golden Gate Park. And I distinctly remember one day, um, a friend in the neighborhood showed me a picture of a begonia. She was growing on her back porch in San Francisco. (laughs) That was in a magazine. It was in, um, the american horticulturist magazine and she was so excited to say look i can grow the same thing that's in a magazine and <laughs> i had honestly never seen a magazine a garden magazine or a garden book and literally it's one of those moments in your life when the light bulb goes off and you say wait a minute i could do that i could do that uh, and so and the quality of photography at that time was really poor um the all the magazines were using writers or for their um, photographs or or commercial photographers who really didn't understand plants or light or, and so there really wasn't much competition. And also in the journalist world, um, you get paid so much less than commercial world. So that wasn't very attractive to to photographers, professional photographers. So I really started looking at myself as a photojournalist more, and that became the opening to meet the garden, the the book learning world of of garden.
0: It it really resonates with me that you considered yourself a photojournalist because I think that uh, the the best of our garden photographers in this world this past twenty years they really are powerful informants and lighthouses for what is beautiful, what is appropriate, what is lust worthy (laughs) and, and for better or worse, right? Saxon. I mean, I think this is one of the things we come up against, but our best garden photographers are guiding us in, in what we see and how we value that, that we are seeing. And I think that is a really important aspect of our garden education that we don't even sometimes I think notice that we are learning Um, or being messaged by osmosis by looking at photography that we are enjoying. And I think that's become only more true as our world has become even more image driven with social media and things like that. But before we get deep into that, I want to go back just a little bit to something you said about being in the Bay Area. And that was, I'd always loved to garden. I loved to garden. Where did that come from?
1: Um, I think uh, I've I've tried to. Think about the answer, how to answer this question, and I just have to pay homage to the goddess Flora. Um,
0: so it wasn't I, your your mom or dad or grandparents or or a neighbor in Virginia. Of course, Virginia is a lush, green, seasonal, agricultural place in in where you were growing up at, especially at that time. I would say,
1: yeah, no, it, it was. I say I mentioned earlier both my parents enjoyed garden. My, my dad right. uh, as a vegetable garden. my mom more ornamental, but right. I, I was gardening as a chore at the time. It wasn't, there was fire. Right. I didn't really, you know, I didn't enjoy it, but I, I love plants. I love looking at them. So when I first started gardening uh, a little bit, when I lived in, in Charlottesville, I lived outside in the country and we had a little vegetable garden and we pretended we were trying to be self-sufficient. And, <laughs> um, and so I, 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 I guess I have a, a affinity for it. So I became, you know, the, one of the gardeners of the clan. And um, so I learned by doing. Um, and yeah, and yeah. when I moved to San Francisco, we had a little garden and um, I was amazed by what you, you could do in a different right. climate. So that became really exciting to be a gardener and to see what, what a human could do with plants.
0: Right. And there is something I, I know for myself, when I uh, moved as a young adult from the much more strenuous growing conditions of 8,000 feet in Colorado to Seattle. And like the difference in what you could grow, you couldn't really go wrong um, per se. And so I think it really helped kindle that gardening um, fervor for me. And I was sort of wondering if that same thing had happened for you in moving to the Bay Area.
1: Yeah, I I do think... You know, I, I've really honestly tried to think, why is that? And I, I honestly, you know, as I said, give props to goddess flora. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the magic of plants, when you start looking at them and trying to live with them, how would you not want to cultivate them and, and have them in your life? And I, I, that is an awareness that maybe came through environmental movement, came from my love of outdoors. I've always liked to backpack and hike and be outside. And I, it's funny, I've always been more attracted to the ecosystems than the geography, uh, I, I, you know, I'd rather see a, a interesting plant than an interesting waterfall or mountain. So I think that's just an affinity for, you know, for wanting to honor, you know, it, it sounds spooky, but that's really uh, I just really think it's important to honor, you know, goddess flora.
0: So here you are, you 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 have this light bulb moment in your own career work where where your photography really intersects beautifully with your plant love, and you you see this niche that is that is really compelling to you and you you jump in you mentioned early on that there were a couple of iterations of you as a gardener you as a garden photographer walk us through some of those iterations that that lead you to 2004 or pro- probably 2002 when you you might have started the 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 work on your first book uh, on this concept of summer dry landscapes, lead, lead us through the iterations that get you to that, Saxon.
1: Yeah, in fact, that's really important uh, how I got to that point and where I've been since then. But when I first uh, decided I could, you know, maybe make a living as a, a garden photographer, photojournalist, at that time in San Francisco was Ortho Books, um, a division of Chevron. Chevron had their corporate headquarters in San Francisco and. Ortho Books was a arm that was producing a lot of small, you know, how to do it um, books. Um, and Sunset as well in the Bay Area was also doing a lot of these small yeah. books. And I was able to, um, you know, get some work doing that. I, w- I definitely remember um, uh, the editor at Ortho at that time was a man named Mike Smith. And I remember distinctly when he advised me on, on their style and what to look for. He wanted to make sure I found gardens that were at least seven years old. And I, I and I, that time I didn't quite understand what that meant, but that means that a garden is old enough to reach some of its own character um, and it's no longer a lot of little plants um, and it's more informative to the viewer of what their garden might look like. Uh, a really young garden doesn't do that. I've certainly had assignments over the years by designers and architects who want me to photograph their latest um, you know, glorious garden, but it's often so new. It doesn't look like a real garden. So I valued that forever. Um, and so when I look for gardens, I try to find ones that are mature. Originally, uh, my first 10, 12 years of, of doing that work, there was lots of it. I was really happy. As I say, there was not much competition at the time, and I loved doing it. So I was, you know, I, I was able to travel around and I would photograph whatever title I was given. I've done 30-some books over the years, and every one was an opportunity to learn about some niche, whether it was bonsais or roses or rhododendrons. And after a while, though, I realized that I wasn't, um, I was just doing what I was told. I was perpetuating a look that is not adequate, not, I don't know the right word, it's not um, appropriate for our climate.
0: I just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but when you say our climate, you are specifically talking about where? The, the west, the coastal, Pacific? What, what do you mean when you say that?
1: No, that that's a great question. I, I live and still live in Northern California. Um, and so the climate here is a summer dry climate. Um, it doesn't rain in the summer, and it's not supposed to rain in the summer. So if you have gardens that require summer rain, you're, you're creating a problem for gardeners. You're misinforming them. You're doing the wrong thing. So I came to that project with the uh, Water District, the East Bay Municipal Utility District, uh, whether it was almost 20 years ago when you right. first started thinking about it. And I came to that project as a professional photographer. They were putting together a team of, of uh, designers, writers, uh, researchers to do a, a very a well uh, thought out book and I became part of a team because I, as a was a professional photographer, I had a library of photos of stock photos I had taken, and they did not have to pay or hire someone to shoot the entire book. So, because I had a library um, that was pertinent to the title, I got the job. And then when I got that job, it was really another epiphany for me, meeting the folks at the water district. They had a whole division of water conservation, and their job was to find water. Um, I questioned them at one point, Well, why are you encouraging people to use less water? Doesn't the water district make money by selling water? And they said, no, our job is to find water. Um, Water is a limited resource um, and we need to find water by having people conserve it. Um, And at that point in those conversations, I realized almost like an epiphany, there's no one moment, but I realized my job as a photographer was to illustrate what success was supposed to look like. And I came up with a with a phrase of changing the aesthetic of what we expect to see in a garden picture because so much of what I was doing previous to that and so much of the garden industry was showing East Coast or English style gardenings very lush and very beautiful and very appropriate for their own climates but they didn't fit in here Um, and in a way the more I hiked and learned about California the less it even looked like it fit in here Um, and it really became and maybe it's because my background as as a journalist I wanted to to tell that story. It wasn't simply tell a story about gardens. It really, it, it still, it informs my work every minute that I honestly have this responsibility as a photographer um, because we're so visual to show gardens that are both so successful and appropriate to our climate. And I think that's true in any climate. I think the, um, you know, every climate around the world has its own ecosystems, ecotones, and plants that are appropriate and it's, Gardeners in those regions should inform people in those climates what success looks like. And so I take this work very seriously.
0: This is Cultivating Place. Saxon Holt is a photojournalist and the sole photographer on more than 30 garden books. He is also the owner of the Photobotanic Garden Library and director of the Summer Dry Project. We'll be right back after a break with more from Saxon about his summer dry project. Stay with us. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you and by support from the American Horticultural Society. As the AHS turns 100, their focus on quality horticultural information is more needed than ever. This includes integrating science, education, social responsibility, environmental stewardship, community, and joy in this gardening world. The American Horticultural Society's in-depth journal, The American Gardener, their reciprocal admissions at public gardens, and their programs, including their new series Conversations with Great American Gardeners, which kicks off October 8th with gardener, political, and community food justice advocate Karen Washington. All work in support of their mission. Listeners of Cultivating Place receive a $10 discount on annual individual membership to the society. So for your annual membership to the American Horticultural Society for the special Cultivating Place rate of just $25 a year, head on over to www.ahsgardening.org forward slash cp. Hey, it's Jennifer. In this conversation, I especially love Saxon's emphasizing his own responsibility for the work that he does, its impacts and its messages. I like his goal as a really successful photojournalist to help shift the aesthetic for what we all as gardeners and humans see as beautiful and worth working toward or for. In last week's episode with Daniel Nolan, I inaccurately described Los Angeles as a desert. This is a misrepresentation born of gross generalization on my part, vegetatively and climatically. And I want to thank listener Krista Nichols for her note about this. While the L.A. Basin is generally a summer-dry, winter-wet environment, also known as a dry, subtropical climate, with annual precipitation totals somewhere around 15 inches, and by definition, deserts receive less than 10 inches of precipitation annually, the Los Angeles Basin is so much more complex and amazing by far than just its arid climate and vegetation types. It is in fact a mosaic of some of the most intriguing and remarkable and very specific plant communities in valleys and plains, on gentle and rugged coastline, on gentle and extremely rugged mountain slopes and peaks. Vegetation types including and as wide-ranging as wide swaths of chaparral, oak woodland and savanna, pinyon juniper woodlands, and in higher elevation forests, you get white fir, jeffrey pine, sugar pine, lodgepole pine, and regions also including coastal sage scrub and coastal plain. The nuances between these types of classifications none of which are desert, is very, very important. And I apologize for the inaccuracy and glibness of my own language right there. I might have shared this story with you before, but this past summer I participated in the Slow Flower Summit at the Filoli Historic House and Garden in Woodside, California. I enjoyed and learned something from every single presentation at the gathering but the panel on sustainable farming and floral design was a highlight for me. The three women, Kelly Matsushita Seng, Emily Adelia Sager, and Molly Oliver, discussed the works and days of being farmers, striving for practices that create personal, environmental, and economic sustainability. First, the three women were in direct conversation about their own lives and experiences, leading up to and through their careers to date. And then they spoke while arranging foliage, branches, seed heads, and flowers that each of them had chosen in advance. They arranged while they talked in front of the summit audience. It was moving in a host of ways. But something that Emily Adelia Sager said has stayed with me since. She had chosen her palette of plants for arranging from her deep love of the California chaparral. That biome or seam of plant life dominated by shrubs co-evolved with California's exposed, hot, summer-dry slopes, those of interior mountains and coastal ridgelines. Many of these shrubs are seriously tough, broadleaf evergreens in an environment where you would not expect to see broadleaf evergreens. And they survive here because they are either summer deciduous to preserve water in their systems, or they have leaves so tough and leathery that they don't lose as much water through evapotranspiration as most broadleaf evergreens. The chaparral includes plants revered globally, like Ceanothus, Manzanita, the silk tassel, Geria, and the snowbell, Styrax, Salvias and Clematis, Calicortis, Fritillaria, so much more. These plants are often, especially in summer, muted in color, varying shades of dusty green, browns, silvers, grays, to be as reflective as possible. Or they are, as noted above, summer or drought deciduous. As Emily worked with her dried flowers and seed heads, grasses and branches, she noted that when she had first come to California, she saw these many shades of brown summer plants as really ugly. But that as she had grown in her understanding of the conditions of this new place she called home, she now looked out across the muted, brown, dry, sleeping summer landscape of the chaparral, and she saw not only great beauty, but more importantly, she saw wisdom and strength. Wisdom and strength. What is not to love if we can look out at our gardens and see wisdom and strength and all the beauty and complexity, contributions and lessons that come with that? We're back now to our conversation with photojournalist Saxon Holt. His most recent garden book of more than 30 is a collaboration with writer Nora Harlow. It is entitled Gardening in Summer Dry Climates, and it provides gardeners in summer dry regions with a wonderful compendium of good, climate-adapted plants for lush, water-conscious landscapes. You know, one of the things that I'm struck by, Saxon, is that I moved to Northern California from Colorado in 2007, and it never occurred to me that I was really changing climates. I assumed that I was in the West, that I, you know, that I had already started at that point um, a general movement towards uh, native plants, not just drought tolerant, but native plants. And I I really did have this naivete that what I was doing in Colorado was going to work in interior Northern California, but I ran headlong into exactly what you are talking about, which is the nuance between these seemingly similar Western arid environments that Nuance of difference makes all the difference to the garden. So I blithely planted out in my new garden um, a lot of new plants in in early spring, and um, had them all go crashing down when come May what May twentieth or something. You know, heat ended up over a hundred. And for the first time in what would be three months of over a hundred degrees and six to seven months without any really measurable precipitation. And then Saxon, I ran into the, the other problem, which was I planted in the fall and those plants that I assumed would be perfectly happy because they'd been hardy in the, uh, the cold of Colorado, um, were distinctly unhappy in the wet, soggy, not frozen, um, but soggy conditions of a Northern California interior, Northern California winter. So yeah, I got schooled pretty, pretty harshly (laughs) that first year. And, and I think, you know, it's not just about you and I being in the West. It's about all gardeners, paying attention to what goes wrong and and using that as an opportunity to learn where we are. And and that takes us beautifully right into that first book, um, Plants and Landscapes for Summer Dry Climates. Now, you were focused on the San Francisco Bay region, not all summer dry climates. But I think you learned some really key lessons there that your new book, that was published in 2020 really takes out as lessons for our entire summer dry region, which is quite extensive, right?
1: Oh, that's exactly right. In fact, that's, that's an important um, point of the whole project, the whole, what I call the summer dry project to talk about the uh, ecotone that is summer dry and winter wet. The original book was quite useful and it was used by people in many other areas, um, but it was limiting very consciously of the San Francisco Bay Area because the local water district was was paying for it. And they wanted to make sure that their rate payers were, you know, getting something appropriate to them. But pretty quickly after it came out, I realized we needed a tool like this to help inform gardeners up and down the whole Pacific coast. Um, and it was really almost within a couple of years of that book coming out that we Nora Harlow, who's the writer at that time, was the, um, she worked in the Department of Water Conservation and she wrote most of that book. She's since retired, but we realized the book was limited. Um, We also quickly realized there were some mistakes and we wanted to revise it and apply it more broadly to a larger region. Um, And it's important, uh, how to say this, but I had been photographing for various clients for many years all across the West um, from, you know, San Diego to Albuquerque, you know, Denver, uh, Seattle, and it was very striking to me to to talk to gardeners who, in many cases, wanted to be doing the right thing by gardening with the climate, but often they called their gardens Mediterranean. um, Ah, Maybe they had some Mediterranean plants in them, and they were wanting to adapt to the climate with um, what People would call drought-tolerant plants, and I would absolutely do not want that term to be in circulation. It should be climate-tolerant plants because every plant is drought-tolerant in its own climate. So we need to be climate-tolerant. Um, okay,
0: wait, wait, wait. I, wait, wait, wait. I want you to go back, and I want you to say that again slowly because I think it's a really important point you just made, Saxon. Say that again.
1: Well, I I kept talking to people who, meeting people who were doing gardening with their drought-tolerant plants. um, Quote-unquote, drought-tolerant plants, yep. The most important aspect is gardening with the climate. And we want our plants to be climate-tolerant. All plants are tolerant of drought in their native habitat. But we want climate-tolerant plants. Um, And and that was not necessarily Mediterranean. Um, As I've talked to different people across the West... It became apparent that no one really had a working definition of Mediterranean. Um, And it's quite appropriate for us in central California. The further south you get, you get almost into desert. Um, Mm -hmm. And the further north you get past uh, Portland and Seattle, you get into more wet winters. But they're still dry summers. Um, And it's hard to call them Mediterranean. Um, So we wanted to use the term summer dry to help people understand that it was a more broad climate than simply Mediterranean. Right. The Mediterranean term is quite useful, but it can be confusing to people who are either beginning to garden or who, don't, who aren't really living in a true Mediterranean climate. Um, so they're all summer dry. And I, I, the key part of that is the word climate, um, yeah. that we work with the climate. Um, and that applies wherever you are. I'm a big fan of um, Doug Tallamy's work, um, and he's the East Coast. Uh, environmentalist and entomologist. And he talks about gardening with native plants. And that's a, entirely appropriate wherever you are, but his palette of native plants that might be drought tolerant in his area are climate tolerant in his area, but they would not apply to us whatsoever. Right. Um, so everywhere that people garden, we want them to be gardening with the climate.
0: I love that reframe right there, Saxon, because that first of all, the use of the word Mediterranean climate for, you know, I think a lot of California gardeners, a lot of Oregon gardeners, a lot of Washington state gardeners hear this term. Um, And it has a sort of romantic appeal to it. And uh we have adopted that word because it is sort of applicable. But the minute you go, as you already pointed out, you know, too far north, it changes in significant ways, too far south and too far east. So I, again, moved to interior Northern California, um, three hours from the coast and over several mountain ranges, and that term was being used for my climate, but I'm nowhere near the coast. And so it is not, it is a misrepresentation that is misleading in harmful ways and sets you up to be um, battling with your climate using too many resources and unsuccessful, which is, takes some of the joy out of gardening. And that reframe that you stated to eliminate this term drought tolerant and reinsert climate tolerant, I think is important because as you say, plants are drought tolerant in their in you know original environments, but what is drought tolerant in Seattle versus Portland versus Sacramento versus Denver is all very different. And I love that specificity, Saxon.
1: Well, thanks. I, I think it's important just to help people understand that. The other conversation also might go around the word drought and what is that. Um, right. I find there are. Uh, two very distinctive understandings of that term. Um, and one is a prolonged time without water, um, and the other is an unexpected time without water. So it depends on how you, who you talk to and how they define drought. Um, I think of uh, summer dry climates that summers are not drought, they're normal. Um, but there's also a quite legitimate and scientific explanation of drought, that any time without water is a drought. So it right. depends on who you talk to and how they understand that term. Uh, I've gotten some angry arguments sometimes with people about trying to define that term and understanding of it. Um, and so it's, um, I love a good conversation as, as here with you, but i we don't want to try to be pedantic or tell people there's only one way of doing it. Ultimately, working with the climate is important. We all know, all gardeners have learned every Part of town has its own microclimate. When you go into the woods or the hills or down a little gully, every part of every town has its own microclimate. So it's that's really where we you know need people to look at and understand uh, Mother Nature in their own neighborhood and then how that applies across the much broader ecotones of their own region.
0: Uh, i I first of all couldn't agree with you more uh but second really want to get into some of the details of you know what you bring to this second book and what some of your hopes are and and one of the things that i I notice in looking at the two books because I have long had your original book on i mean I think it was one of the first books I got when I moved to um Northern California and had my first unsuccessful <laughs> uh summer or winter and uh realized I needed to do a lot more research and getting to know my new home. But there are differences which I think are important culturally and horticulturally between the first book and the second book. And you know, one of them is right on that very first page uh full picture, which is a beautiful picture of stipa tenuissima flowing through, hmm, I'm not sure if it's iris or something in, in or um it doesn't matter. Uh, The fact is that since 2004, Stipa tenuissima has been designated an invasive plant in the state of California. And so we we are all evolving all the time, and we are all learning all the time, as are our gardens learning and teaching us. So tell us about the second book. Tell us about how you and Nora organized it and how you chose uh, plants and locations and lessons, Saxon.
1: Well, first off, the book is a plant book. It's 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 meant to inspire people to, to use and choose plants. It's yep. really not meant to be a, a design book or, or treatise on why we should be doing the right thing. Um, it's a plant book. And I will gently chide you that the opening photo does not have stypetinus in it. And stypetinus is not in the book because it's I think illegal to sell it now in California.
0: Yeah, no, no. I'm saying in the 2004 book, it was oh. uh, a, f- yeah. a featured, and that is one of the things we've just had to, you know, adapt to is learning which plants aren't great, and and so that was in the 2004 okay. book, and right. very noticeably excluded in in the newest book because we've learned since then, right?
1: Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So I, w- I was going to say that there are so many good plants that you can substitute for the ones you like, so you may see right. a picture of. Of Stipe tenuissima and you say i love that look oh but maybe i shouldn't be using it what else is there and there's a vast right. array of plants out there there's so many great plant people and nurseries and explorers and plants coming into the trade that if you do at least a little research you can find something adapted to your own little microclimate that's not appropriate somewhere else um so right. it, it's that's really that why the we want the book to be a tool to and, and inspire people because it was intended to be a visual book with, you know, photography. Obviously, we couldn't make it a really great encyclopedia. I, I in our area, the Sunset Western Garden Book is sometimes considered the the bible of of uh, plants encyclopedias because it's so detailed. There's so many cultivars and hybrids, and um, it's regularly updated. It's, but it's not really a visual book. Um, so it's difficult with this book, the new one, to try to target the whole. Pacific summer dry region because every local region has its own set of um, plants that are adapted to it. Um, and in a way, the first book was the perfect example of really local publishing because it really was only targeted to Northern California. In the new book, um, in order to expand the message and try to target a larger audience, which is our, our purpose, we had to divide the Pacific coast into, into four regions. Um, and each yeah. one really would deserve its own detailed book, so some of the limitations of the new book are the plant list is not as great as we would want it to be. Um, and the research that Nora did into uh, all the plants um, was almost exhausting. The time she spent talking with our consultants about which plants to include and which plants there was not room for became really a, like a cutting room floor. What, what does not make it?
0: This is Cultivating Place. Saxon Holt is a photojournalist and the sole photographer on more than 30 garden books. He's also owner of the Photobotanic Garden Library and director of the Summer Dry Project. We'll be right back after a break with more from Saxon about his work and the Summer Dry Project generally. Stay with us. So thinking out loud this week, one of the resources that Saxon works with and serves as an advisor to as well, I believe, is something called WUCLS. That's an acronym W-U-C-O-L-S. A service of the University of California's Division of Agriculture and Natural Resources, WUCLS stands for Water Use Classification of Landscape Species. This searchable database compiles the water usage and drought tolerance of plants based on specific locations across the state of California, many of which would be comparable to many other locations in other western states. One of my favorite things about Wuckels is that from Abelia to Desert Zinnia, Zinnia acerosa, you can look a plant up and see how much water use it requires in your specific area. And often, Wuckels will simply say to you, Inappropriate, meaning the plant you are looking up uses far too much water to be appropriate in your location. I love that clear message, Inappropriate. Like the plants compiled in Saxon and Nora Harlow's Gardening in Summer Dry Climates, Wookles provides more information for all of us to consider as we consider our own gardens and how to support them not just with beauty, but with the wisdom and strength and appropriateness our climates and world need now as ever. We're back now to our conversation with photojournalist Saxon Holt. The vision of Saxon and Nora's summer dry project is that in the midst of tumultuous climate change, it is all the more important that gardeners be stewards of the land attuned to their local environments on behalf of all creatures. The Summer Dry Project is an ongoing initiative to provide gardeners in summer dry climates with authoritative plant information and inspiring photos that encourage sustainable garden practices. We're back now to hear more about better gardening in summer dry climates.
1: Back to my uh, responsibility as a photographer, you know, if, uh, if people are going to look at pretty pictures and draw them in to, you know, choosing plants, then we hope they'll go further than just look at the pretty pictures. I'm I'm honestly right. often frustrated that, you know, I am the eye candy for a, what might be <laughs> an important project. You know, I don't want, it, it happens all the time though. I'm sure you've come across it too. People see a pretty picture and they don't look beyond that. They don't know why, what made it pretty? Why is that important? What, what is it, right. you know, let, let's go deeper than that.
0: Well, and I just want to right there uh, for listeners, describe what I think is just such a, a fantastic, um, poster child for exactly what you're talking about. And that is the cover photo that is on the new book, Gardening in Summer Dry Climates, Plants for a Lush, comma, Water Conscious Landscape. So immediately the title focuses you not on what the plants can or cannot do, but on what you as a gardener are doing with your water, which I love that we, um, that adjustment of the focus. And in this picture, which is a stunning, you know, picture of a garden anyone would want, every plant here is, first of all, one that you can grow Saxon, but also I can grow, which is I think important. And there is I might get some of the names wrong because I still call mimulus mimulus, but beautiful orange is it mimulus or yes. aranthe? Yeah, okay, I like this, yeah. that one. Yes. Mm-hmm. And um, there is one of my favorite named plants, verbena delamina lilacina or lilacina delamina. And there is an origan, and there are California poppies, and it is everything that this book is promising. You have the capacity to attain, which is lush and water conscious. And those are all natives uh, to our larger region. And they are all colorful and floriferous throughout the season in the right conditions.
1: Yeah, no, that's the it's, it's interesting when you do a book, the publisher has their own ideas of what to put on it, how to market it. And they wanted something that was colorful, that's something that looked lush, something that looked, um, I assume I, something look relatively easy to do uh, as opposed to a very you know highly cultivated ornamental garden um, it looks very approachable and what's actually really interesting uh, I can walk to this garden um, it's my neighbor's garden um, who I've just known for many years and it just happens. she's very active in the California native Plant Society so she's a very very good gardener and it just so happens to be in my neighborhood I we photographed from Seattle to San Diego in the book. And um, what got chosen for the cover is literally my backyard.
0: <laughs> you know, what you're saying about not just being eye candy, but being information rich garden narrative at the same time is exactly what you captured right there. And so for, for listeners, this this newest book, as Saxon points out, is is a plant book, but it does have some really good foundational uh, kind of philosophy and uh, putting out of thesis. Uh, And it's there, I would say three major sections. The first one is all about gardening where you are and uh, sort of the reasons for that and the ways to break that down and, and how to determine where you are and what to take into account, such as your topography, your climate zones, your um, you know, the origins of the Pacific coast climate and so forth. The, the next section focuses on how to think about design and taking into account some of these concepts that, that Saxon and I have been talking about, such as summer dry and winter wet, uh, climate trends and water as a not, uh, unending resource, um, wildland invaders so those plants that escape the garden fence and garden introduction and are disruptive in our wildlands garden thugs living with wildfire and then the carbon capture garden so one of the things that i really love about the second book saxon is how you have brought really the the last 20 years of thinking in our gardens as integral to our um, impact in the world, uh, you have brought that really up to date and I appreciate that so fully.
1: Well, um, thank you. I don't think I did it or we did it. I think the, the scientists out there and the, uh, who mm, have done a yeah. lot of that work and we're just reporters to try to show what's out there. And I think it's really important to understand the science these days that's behind carbon capture and the rhizosphere and the, the importance of the soil the science that's showing how important plants are to the health of our planet. Um, I think gardeners sort of know that intuitively, um, and it's been hard to make an impact with the climate deniers and the resource extractors that there's science behind conserving our resources, and now that there is science, um, it's important to all of us to be more active and, and prove that. So we wanted to include a carbon capture garden. We wanted to talk about soil as, um, as, you know, ecosystems. These are really important to understand, Um, even if we only touch on it for a few pages in the book, it's important that people understand why, honestly, we need to garden consciously these days. We we, we can't just garden because we love to get outside. Um, We have a larger responsibility.
0: Mm -hmm. And what's really nice, as you pointed out earlier as well, is that um, the bulk of the book, more than two-thirds of the book, maybe it's two thirds of the book is focused on these plant profiles with pictures and information and growing conditions so that it's not about finger wagging and you should do this and you should do this, but it is about how to get a beautiful garden that is also a contributor to our environment, to habitats, to being a, a benefit to the world instead of a drain on resources. And, um, and and on and on you as a gardener
1: it's so important for us as gardeners to do the right thing um, and it's really a joyful act to do that
0: it is a joyful act yes that's the greatest i think strength of us as gardeners is tapping into that joy saxon
1: yeah i think i think part of my so my job as a as a as a journalist is to try to show that to people you know my my skill is in photography i i you know i'm trying to make, make more conversations and talk to people but but if i can offer the photography to help people see that even their own little garden makes a difference it's, it's really uh you know I'm, I'm in a unique not unique perhaps position but i do travel around i see lots of different gardens and and it's really exciting to see gardens that are connected to each other and connected to the land and when that starts happening um, garden to garden next door to each other or in the same neighborhood, one starts to see how there is a potential for a green infrastructure. There's a potential for bringing nature home, as Doug Tallamy would say, to, to making a difference. And people see that and they understand that, oh yeah, I, I'm connected to the larger world. They are excited. You know they, That reinforces their, their message and their own friends and neighborhood. They don't do it because they're being told to do it. They realize. It's just the right thing to do, it's exciting, uh, it's fun, and it's uplifting.
0: Yeah, yeah. So over the course of the process of putting this book together and working with Nora and this exhaustive research, were there any surprises or new lessons for you in this work, Saxon?
1: Oh, it was. Um, I had two actually, it's because it was, um, it was really fun to travel around um, and, and meet people. Um, I went to Portland, as one of my stops, Portland's always been a great gardening town. So I went there with the intention of talking about summer dry uh, climate and plants adapted to it. And I remember specifically Sean Hogan, who's a great uh, plants person there, owns Cistus Nursery. He was very eager to show me some of the plants that he thought was adapted to Portland. Um, and so many of them were California natives. And I was just, I had to laugh and give him a gentle chiding that I didn't come to Portland to find California natives. <laughs> but but that was indeed true. You know, the climate is changing. Portland, I think, is getting drier. Uh, our California plants are more appropriate to the area. So that was interesting. Um, there's a whole separate conversation we can have about native plants being ornamental or not. Um, it's, they have a bad rap sometimes of looking out of place when, in fact, the right one is looks just right. Um, and I'm excited that the book actually has almost 40% California natives in it as we as the great plant people and nursery people in the trade are finding better ways to propagate plants. They're, they're more natives in the landscape um, uh, trade. So it's really easier to find plants that are more adapted. And then the other sort of surprise to me is Nora and I went back and forth uh, with each other, asking each other what, what plants we wanted, what was working, what did we find? And because I get out a lot, you know, she would listen to me, well, I, f- I found this somewhere and, and this is, a, you know, how about this, what do you know about this? And the, perhaps the most surprising of all was in my own garden I have a hedge along my driveway of camellia susanqua um, which I just really love for their evergreen they're, They they start flowering in October and they go to uh, they're still flowering now and they take the really hot sun of my that part of my garden along my driveway and they're they're not thirsty I do a lot of mulching so I make sure they you know they, they try to do all the right gardening practices but and anquas are entirely adapted to our climate. And that's the other thing we want to make people understand. A lot of climate, uh, plants from around the world are adapted to different climates. Um, and that's part of the fun, the art of gardening is to discover which plants are adapted. There's a huge argument to be made about native plants being the most important for their own ecosystem services, but there's no denying that gardeners love their own special plants. They like to push the limits and try things. And I say in my own garden, uh, Camillo azanquet turned out to be a really tough plant. I'm I just I, I can honestly say yes, it, it really works um, in in it's my climate, which is um, where I am. I'm outside the Bay Area. It's much hotter uh, and colder um, in Novato where I am than the immediate Bay Area. So it's 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 a striking plant that works.
0: I love that 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 is a. Uh, yet another reminder to all of us that we are always learning and there's always more to learn and our direct observations can often teach us um, more than we think they can. And, and more than the books might tell us we can or, yeah, they, 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 our own gardens can teach us pretty much everything we need to know if we're paying attention, I think. So I wonder if, you know, coming through 2020 and your own mission, has it deepened your mission in any way? Has it altered it in any way you'd like to share with us?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I do think I've, I've, I'm, I have i have am i do not know if it has anything to do with, with COVID or social justice movements or awareness of others. Um, I think my own sense of urgency is drawn by the climate catastrophe we've brought upon ourselves. Um, and it's more an awareness I've had, um, in the past few years of, of doing that and trying to reorient my own work away from simply being a uh, photographer to more of an advocate for um, for gardens, and uh, you know, I, I think gardens matter. I think every small act we do adds resiliency, and I've come more and more convinced of that. And in, in recent years, um, that we simply must do that. That I, I'm getting a bit anxious that we. Uh, aren't doing all we can. I'm excited with the new administration, there'll be more focus on environment and things like green infrastructure and actually helping uh, motivate people economically to do the right thing. Um, So that that evolution, I think, has really not much to do with COVID. I I was able to travel a fair amount uh, last year on my work. I work very solitary, work by myself. Um, I'm not much of a risk for many um, uh, people in gardens. And as a journalist, actually, I did have a a technical exemption as an essential worker. So I was able to uh, convince people I could, you know, be my work was important on the Summer Dry Project. So um, I, I, don't, I think I, we all should be more and more aware of what's happening with the climate and how gardens can matter. It's, it's really why your own work, Jennifer, is so important because we need advocates, we need people to spread the word what others are doing. Um, and collectively, we can all make a difference.
0: Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today, Saxon. It has been a great pleasure to speak with you.
1: Oh, thank you. It's been a great pleasure. I feel like we could talk for hours.
0: Saxon Holt is a photojournalist. His most recent book is in collaboration with writer Nora Harlow. Gardening in Summer Dry Climates, Plants for a Lush, Water-Conscious Landscape, was published by Timber Press in 2020. The vision of the Summer Dry Project is that in the midst of tumultuous climate change, it is all the more important that gardeners be stewards of the land, attuned to the local environment on behalf of all creatures. The Summer Dry Project is an ongoing initiative to provide gardeners in summer dry climates with authoritative plant information and inspiring photographs that encourage sustainable garden practices. You can follow Saxon's work at saxonholt.com, at photobotanic.com, and at summerdry.com. Join us again next week when we're joined by Severin von Tarschner-Fleming, Executive Director and Founder of The Greenhorns, a new farmer advocacy and support collective with a mission to help reform our current agricultural system with an eye toward ecology, regeneration, and community care. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. It is made possible by listeners just like you at cultivatingplace.com and by support from the American Horticultural Society. To read more about and see many of Saxon's images from the Summer Dry Project, head over to cultivatingplace.com where you will find this week's episode show notes under the podcast tab. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fidler and producer and development director Sarah Bohannon. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Mechupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week... Enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.